Welcome to Dublin City University Conflict Institute Podcasts, bringing you in-depth analysis of some of the key contemporary issues in international affairs, with a focus on analysing conflict resolution, peacebuilding and security issues. Today I'm speaking with Paolo Rovetti, Associate Professor in International Relations in the Politics of the Middle East in Dublin City University, and author of a book from Palgrave last year, Political Participation Around Katami to the Green Movement. Hello, you're very welcome uh, to the DCU podcasts with the Conflict Institute. Obviously, presidential elections are due in Iran this year. It's going to be an interesting time politically for, for those like yourself with a focus on the region. What can we expect over the next number of months? Thanks, John, for, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be, to be here with you this morning. Um, so this is a very complex question. You're not talking about starting with softballs, but definitely it's, it's a good one because it allows me to kind of outline a little bit, you know, the background of where Iran um, is at the moment, what kind of, um, domestically speaking, what kind of uh, phase um, are Iranians, um, you know, the population and the political elite going through at the moment. So this is possibly one of the toughest um, years for Iran, well, not exclusively, of course, with the pandemic going on for everybody, but um, um, an extremely tough year for Iran, um, probably one of the toughest since the Islamic Republic was established after the revolution in 1979. Uh, We have a global pandemic going on and sanctions um, against Iran and on Iranian economy also um, are affecting Iran's ability to uh, retrieve medicaments and drugs which are needed to kind of, you know, keep the, the pandemic and the spreading of the disease and the virus under control. So it's a very tough year. Um, um, we have elections in June, as you, as you rightly mentioned, uh, which uh, will likely, um, you know, see a different phase uh, starting with, uh, you know, with the new presidency and therefore the new government after, after June. Uh, this year. Um, at the very moment, the uh, administration led by uh, Rouhani, who, um, you know, is ending, is terminating his second mandate as president of the republic, um, is, um, you know, is dealing with the pandemic, is dealing with sanction, and doesn't find itself in a very strong position since um, two, three years ago, the Trump administration unilaterally decided to uh, withdraw from the GCPOA, which you know was called the um, generally speaking the, the nuclear agreement that the EU, Iran, and um, the USA reached in 2015. The, GC, the, the JCPOA was a major achievement, as we all know, and the um, unilateral withdrawal of Trump and the USA was a major blow, uh, not only internationally speaking, and not only in terms of the um, diplomatic credibility of, of the USA and the implications uh, of this for you know, regional politics and those international politics, but was also a major blow against the credibility of the very government within, uh, within, uh, within the country. Uh, so since then, so since 2018, the withdrawal you know, of, uh, from, from the JCPOA, what we have seen has been a, a gradual and progressive weakening um, of the power that was, and the kind of, um, you know, credibility and the strength uh, of, uh, of the government in terms of its relationships with other factions and other political actors um, in Iran's domestic policy politics. 
Um, in December, the government, the sorry, the parliament decided to um, pass a new law, uh, which um, will allow Iran to enrich uranium up to 20%, which was which is something that runs against the provisions of the JCPOA, which of course is, you know, those provisions have been challenged by uh, by Trump's unilateral withdrawal. So um, the government. Uh, when it comes to this law that was passed in December, the government didn't oppose that, but um, proposed some amendments that the parliament didn't um, uh, didn't respect, so didn't accept. Um, this this is a good indicator of um, the relationship, the balance of power, and the relationship between a government, which is of course, ending its mandates, but, but also is kind of hegemonized, is kind of controlled by what we might call moderate slash um, technocratic uh, factions in Iranian domestic politics and a parliament which is controlled by more conservative, if not um, hardline, hardline uh, political factions. Um, so, the, the kind of drifting towards the right or, you know, more conservative uh, factions uh, that we have in Iranian domestic politics is also telling in terms of what is the, what we could expect for, um, for the election, the presidential election in June uh, this year. Uh, of course, there's, you know, um, newspapers and different um, platforms from within Iran are, um, are suggesting names. Um, so candidates are naming candidates for, uh, for the next presidential elections. It's, it's way too early. So this is something that all, you know, often happens that um, newspapers and you know, political platform um, nominate and, and name the potential candidates for each faction, but it doesn't mean that those nominated people will actually be running for uh, for the presidency in June. However, it's 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 a good again. It is a good indicator of uh, where we're going and what we might expect, what we could, you know, reasonably actually expect from um, from elections this year. There's definitely, there are two important elements, I think, two kind of broader dynamics that are worth, um, you know, taking into consideration. The first one is the loss of power of the clergy. This is the result of a much longer, um, you know, historical dynamic. Uh, what we have seen in the past, say, 20 years, uh, 25 um, you know, 20 years has been the, um, the gradual marginalization of the clergy as an important center of power. And his, this has gone hand in hand with the second dynamic I would like to highlight, which is the progressive uh, strengthening and, um, um, you know, the progressive strengthening of the kind of more military um, uh, faction or the conservative hard hardliners hardline factions that are connected to the military forces. And when I, when I say military forces, what I'm thinking of are the Revolutionary Guards. So uh, not the uh, kind of um, um, standard um, um, army and army forces, but the paramilitary uh, Revolutionary Guards uh, who have um, since, again, in the past three decades, two, three decades, have accumulated more and more power 
paradoxically also thanks to the sanctions for some twisted um, you know, economic implications that sanctions had and which put the uh, revolutionary guards in a very well, in a, in a very good position for becoming um, you know, the only, almost only economic actor able to actually circumnavigate uh, sanctions. So there has been a progressive increase in the, in the power, in the economic power, and therefore also in the political power of the revolutionary guards that is, you know, very, very uh, important uh, to, um, you know, to, to, um, to explain what will likely happen in the next presidential election, which is, you know, the victory and the kind of consolidation of the power of um, right-wing and, and, and conservative and uh, hardline factions linked to the revolutionary, to the revolutionary guards. Well, that's a really interesting backdrop to to, to coming election um, and a lot in there. I mean, is it possible, uh, given the challenges of travel at the moment, to, to, to assess what the balance between uh, the domestic and the international will be in this early stage of the debate? I mean, uh, presumably the government will try and blame sanctions for everything rather than their own decisions, but presumably the opposition will try and maybe do both, uh, accuse them of mismanaging internally and externally. Uh, is there any sense of, of how that's playing out domestically? Yeah, um, so the, op the so-called opposition, so when I, you know, when I, um, when I say opposition here, I'm referring to the kind of, um, um, you know, kind of more moderate, less conservative political functions. Paradoxically, those who are in power uh, in this very moment actually have done a lot uh, in terms of trying to tackle corruption and trying to, to, to tackle kind of bad practices when it comes to spending public money, for instance. Um, of course, there's, you know, there's something that needs to be said, which is the fact that in many, um, you know, authoritarian countries, although not exclusively, uh, we have the tendency to use, uh, for instance, trials for corruption or corruption charges in a very, instrumentalizing them in a very political way. So uh, a good way to kind of, of target your enemies is to accusing them is accusing them of, of corruption. So we have had that in the country, but it is true that the Rohani's administration has done a lot of work to, um, you know, to try to at least um, get a public conversation going about this this issue and also taking um, action, policy action against um, against corruption. Um, this has targeted the conservative, um, the conservative representatives, and broadly speaking, members of the conservative, um, of the conservative factions. Um, what will likely happen is that uh, when you know the next presidential election will take place, and we will have you know what everybody is expecting to see, which doesn't mean will actually be you know the, the real, the actual result of the of the election, but you know, we can kind of uh, expect that. Uh, what we will see after the election and the victory of, um, you know, conservative and, and, and uh, more conservative political faction is that we will see the same game over and over. Uh, it is important to underline here that the conservative faction, and especially those who are tightly connected with the Revolutionary Guards, had a regional network of economic activities not only economic activities and therefore, um, you know, investments in infrastructures in places like Syria, for instance, but of course, 
this goes hand in hand with also with military presence of, um, you know, in this case, the Revolutionary Guards in, again, places like Syria. Uh, although not exclusively, uh, we've heard a lot about Iraq and Iran's presence in Iraq. Um, also because a few weeks ago was the anniversary of the assassination of um, the general um, Soleimani in Baghdad. Um, and the same can be said about Yemen, although Yemen is a, is a much more difficult kind of, um, you know, theater to, um, uh, to work in uh, because of a much bigger and kind of more profound crisis going on. Uh, Syria and Iraq, uh, especially Syria, um, in a way are much more stable, um, you know, theaters of conflict and situations where for the uh, revolutionary guards and, you know, Iranian entrepreneurs is much easier if you want to, you know, to work and, and also invest in, as I said, infrastructures, the construction of ports would be, especially in Syria, would be, you know, would be a very well-known example. Uh, so I think there is a, you know, even when we look at the regional and international politics, what we can see is that the, again, the revolutionary guards and the conservative um, factions that are connected to the revolutionary guards are very well placed to actually, um, you know, to, they actually have the kind of network of power and the network of the social capital, the economic capital and the political power, uh, capital for putting up a real challenge um, to more conservative factions and to win the presidency. I mean, one big change obviously just, just happened uh, in, in the last number of weeks is to defeat of Donald Trump in the US presidential election and Joe Biden uh, taken power. Uh, do, you, do you expect any change in dynamics there? And I suppose in particular, would if there is any change, would it happen early enough to have any impact in terms of the forthcoming elections? So John Biden has promised to revive diplomatic efforts towards Iran, not exclusively, but you know, broadly speaking to revive uh, diplomatic efforts and in particular, specifically when it comes to Iran to revive the uh, so-called nuclear agreement. Um, I, I think, you know, reading um, declarations from politicians um, in Iran and following news from Iran, uh, so this, this is a very welcome move, of course. Um, Iran made a huge investment in terms of, uh, you know, exclusively political uh, investment in the nuclear agreement, and of course, the uh, you know the withdrawal, Trump's withdrawal was uh, you know was was a bitter, bitter uh, surprise for the Islamic Republic. So there's, I would say, there's a lot of excite, excitement, if you want, for you know for Biden and 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 hope that Biden will actually stick to his promise. However, this doesn't come without challenges. I would say that the biggest challenge for um, let's say for, you know, for, for not only for the nuclear agreement to be revived, but more generally speaking for a less confrontational um, relationship between the two countries to be reinstated, I would say that the biggest challenge is comes from the USA themselves, both from uh, American foreign policy, uh, specifically regional politics, but also from American domestic politi politics. Um, the situation, domestically speaking, the situation in the USA is doesn't, you know, seems quite precarious. Um, I think we we've all 
you know, watched the assault on Capitol Hill with a mix of feelings. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, this is a good example of how precarious things might, might become. So I expect that domestic politics will, will get the biggest share of attention, um, of the president's attention. Um, the risk here is that uh, this will leave uh, room and space for the regional allies of the USA uh, to actually run or direct in an important way American foreign policy in the region, towards the region, and more specifically towards Iran. USA allies in the region are all hostile to, to Iran. Um, you know, of course, Israel, Saudi Arabia, um, Egypt as well, have been in the past years consolidating, um, you know, an alliance which really has, um, you know, at its core, the fact of being anti-Iran. So there's, there's the American allies in the region, you know, are inherently, if we want, uh, anti-Iran. And these, I, I see these, I think this would be the biggest challenge for you know, for the success of a diplomatic initiative led by the USA towards Iran. Iran is very cautious um, and is extremely aware. Um, you know, there's an acute awareness, if you want, um, in, in Iran of all the challenges that might come with, um, with reviving the nuclear deal and reviving the, um, you know, diplomatic initiatives between, between the two countries. And um, I would say that the attitude of the Iranian elites, apart from, you know, a general positive attitude, as I said before, is one of wait and see. Um, it would be, it's, it's up to the Americans if, you know, in a certain way, it is up to the USA to um, demonstrate that they are in good faith, first of all, and second, to demonstrate that, that they can actually deliver. Um, a nuclear agreement was already reached six years ago, so we know it's possible. We know it's, uh, you know, it is, yes, we can do it. I mean, it's, it's possible to do it. Um, the problem is not, but the problem right now is not that much to repeat um, something that we already did, they already did six years ago, but to stick to, you know, to, to, the, to the conditions that um, that agreement uh, puts in place. So the ability to deliver much more than the ability to make something happen. And I think it will be up to the USA to actually, you know, to actually prove, demonstrate that they can do this. Um, and, and how the USA will demonstrate this is of course through, you know, a concerted uh, revision of US policies towards Iran at least those policies that were have been implemented in the past, you know, um, few years, uh, but also another, uh, you know, another demonstration that Iran, another action that Iran is actually waiting for, is a um, a decrease in the regional hostility towards towards Iran. So uh, the USA will also need to demonstrate that they are able to uh, distinguish their own national policy from the policies that its allies in the region will, will put in place. Okay. And while Biden said very little really during the election, apart from you know, generally supportive of multilateralism, but the specifics of his policy towards Israel and the Palestinians, Iran, Saudi Arabia, were rather modest in detail to say the least. 
Uh, but nonetheless, there was a tone there um, and suggestions this week of, of restrictions on sales to Saudi Arabia, at least for as long as the Yemen um, war continues. But, but there have been some suggestions that he might revise the US traditional line to Saudi Arabia, um, at least be more skeptical uh, of Saudi Arabia's uh, good intents, to say the least, um, in terms of its clashes with American interests. Have you, have you any sense that, that, you know, even if Israel in some ways remains fairly rock solid in a U.S. sort of foreign policy region, that the wider alliances with, with Saudi Arabia and others may be a little less firm in a Biden administration? Um, I must say I'm, I'm not very, I'm, I'm not uh, overly optimistic uh, that, you know, that, um, the USA will be actually willing or able to, you know, structurally or, I mean, structurally cha significantly change um, their uh, policy towards the region, um, structurally speaking. So for instance, um, significantly revise the terms and condition, if you want, of their alliance with, um, you know, with regional allies. Um, I think the um, so during Obama's administration, one of the you know one of the uh, kind of dynamics that were in place was a what looked like a, a gradual disengagement of um, the USA from the region to the advantage of you know engagement in other parts of the world. Uh, I'm not sure we are right now in a phase where this is possible. Um, of course, the, um, the strengthening of the position of the regional allies of the USA, um, you know, was, was connected to the plan of dis the disengagement plan that, you know, back then the Obama, the Obama administration wanted to put in place. And this is why, you know, the USA needed very strong allies in the region. Um, I don't think those allies have actually, um, you know, delivered in terms of uh, making sure that, um, you know, conflicts can be avoided and, you know, the, the, the region can be kind of pacified or kept stable by their, through their leadership or thanks to their leadership. So um, I, I don't think that there, there's, there will be, we can expect a, you know, strong disengagement, um, American disengagement from the region. And therefore I don't expect to see any significant structural change in the relationship that the USA have with, uh, with their allies in the region. I often wonder, uh, you know, what the role of Europe would be in this, uh, you know, in this, in this context. Um, of course, many Middle Eastern countries and, you know, including Iran are looking, are looking, <laughs> you know, um, towards Europe. Um, for, um, you know, sometimes just for action, sometimes just for, you know, just for um, not really an alternative, because if you, you know, if you speak to any uh, Iranian policymakers, uh, they're very skeptical, they are very skeptical of the, you know, the grand European Union project. It's, it's very complicated. It's, uh, you know, very contradictory, oftentimes, Oftentimes, what they see from you know from their perspective, so from Tehran, is actually you know national policies implemented by national states, members of the EU, instead of a common uh, foreign policy and the you know cons 
consistent and co coherent European action and policy. So they're very skeptical, but nevertheless, they, um, they, look, they look for, um, they look at Europe for, um, you know, um, making their, their position stronger and making it easier for them to um, have a fruitful dialogue with the, with the USA. This is, this is why in 2015, the nuclear agreement was, was reached. Um, because there was on European, on the European side, of course, on, you know, um, American side and Iranian side as well, but Europe really played a very important role. And there was a strong commitment um, on the part of the European Union towards multilateralism and towards, you know, constructing a forum where these two countries that hadn't speak, spoken for each other for so many years and, you know, there was so much going on between them, if you want, um, could actually find the right environment to sit down and have direct talks. Um, I'm, I'm not sure right now we are, we are in this situation. So this is why I'm not particularly optimistic. Um, on the other hand, I think that the Biden administration will want uh, reasonably and legitimately to um, impress a different mark, a different quality to its own to its uh, foreign policy towards um, Iran and the region. So they might, you know, they might um, give a boost uh, if we want to diplomatic initiatives um, towards Iran. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not very optimistic, but I, you know, I don't rule out the, you know, the possibility that some, some virtuous um, cycle might be put in place uh, by by Biden's administration. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Europe is preoccupied with the, the COVID pandemic at the moment and going through some of its old internal. But, but I think you're right. I think they were central to the mediation between the United States and Iran. I mean, without some actor, and Europe, I think, played that role. Um, I think Biden has certainly given us clear signals that he wants to engage with Europe. Um, and particularly the European Union in a stronger way. And it might, it might serve their purposes because for the EU, this is a significant stretch in terms of their foreign policy impact. Um, but yet perhaps it's one that, you know, they've shown they can achieve, you know, unlike intervening on Israel-Palestine or, or with China, where the diverse interests of 27 have overwhelmed them mostly. Um, there is at least a distinct uh, European project there. So maybe towards the end of the year when the domestic situation changes, but, but I suspect you're right, this side of the election, I, I think Europe is in not any position uh, to stretch itself uh, diplomatically, uh, unless the Biden administration is really seeking them to do so, which um, we're not seeing yet, but, but, but maybe we will re retain some optimism um, on, on that account. If you're right, Paula, and we are facing a more conservative, um, you know, revolutionary guards connected a president com coming in uh, midsummer. What might that mean for the sort of civil society opposition? I mean, your 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 latest book took us up to the green movement, and so um, obviously some of those people will be hoping conservatives don't come to power. Some may be indifferent as to who wins and, and see them. Um, but for, as for a point of argument, we'll assume that a revolutionary guard supported candidate does come through in the June election. Um, what, what would that mean for sort of the more civil society-based opposition inside Iran? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think this is, you 
Yeah, this is a very important aspect. I, I actually forgot to mention this in the, in the first in the first answer. So this is a good um, you know good opportunity for me to um, you know to to kind of lay out some of the uh, reflections I've been doing myself um, recently while thinking with some colleagues to the recent cycles of protests we we have witnessed um, you know in the country. Um, so you're right, the Revolutionary Guard supported, or you know, even member or former member, um, president is not what many people, especially you know, progressive-minded uh, activists and you know, just ordinary citizens are, are looking forward to. However, what we have in the in the country is a very, I would say, common situation whereby a, you know, it's difficult to identify an alternative. Um, in this sense, I really think that Iran is not alone. You know, I'm, I'm in Italy right now. I'm Italian. We're going through yet another uh, crisis of government. So the current government, you know, um, um, I mean, doesn't exist anymore. And they're trying the same forces, the same political forces that were used to be in the majority in the parliament and the government. Therefore, are trying to kind of uh, you know design a new uh, combination to still keep protect that majority. So, of course, I mean this, this is different, of course, when it comes to you know how things combine in Iran. But I, I think there is a shared feeling of um, on the one side wanting or not wanting something, but having a hard time to actually articulate what we would, we would want. What is the institutional um, alternative in terms of political factions in Iran or political party in Italy that we would actually support and, and want to be in power? Um, I think there has been in the country for the past uh, 30, 40 years, a restriction of, um, if you want, the political, the political um, options that citizens might, you know, might, might um, uh, have when they go to, uh, to the elections. Uh, 30 years ago, we had this interplay, if we want, between two main factions, the so-called reformist, that would be the more kind of, um, you know, progressive and reform-minded, even liberal-minded on the one side, and on the other side, we would have the conservative. That dynamic is, is gone. So so that doesn't exist anymore. And the whole political system has swung, if you want, towards a much conservative and, you know, kind of more far, kind of more rightist, um, um, uh, you know, kind of environment. So that the, you know, the, the alternative really is not there anymore. And even if Rouhani was elected for the first time, 2013, with a lot of, uh, um, you know, support, coming from, um, you know, from the more reformist, the more con uh, progressive uh, forces and groups in society, that kind of push for, um, you know, a progressive Iran, an Iran that is more um, careful and more, uh, you know, care about human rights, but also social equality, that kind of ethical push, that kind of political marking is, you know, if you want, is gone, okay? So, um, there's, you know, when it comes to progressive forces in society, there's a lot of, uh, you know, preoccupation as well for the uh, the result of, of the next presidential election. But at the same time, the awareness that, you know, it is likely that not much will change. 
Um, if we look, for instance, at the, you know, at, at the most recent cycles of protests that took place in the country, so, um, you know, from, say, um, you mentioned, John, the Green Movement, so from, say, the 2009 on, so to, in 2009-2010, the so-called Green Movement broke out and uh, the movement was protesting the re-election of Ahmadinejad to the presidency of the Republic for the second time and people were convinced that the election was fraudulent. So the movement protested for months and months in, you know, in the streets of different countries, of different cities, mostly Tehran, and it was interesting to see how quickly uh, the movement radicalized. So we went in, in a space of few weeks, we went from slogans such as, you know, where is my vote would be the most famous. So where is my vote and, you know, slogans related to this um, um, electoral fraud to slogans that were calling for, you know, regime change, for a change of system and so forth and so on. And I think it's, it's interesting because since the 2009-2010, so since the Green Movement, we have had a much broader radicalization when it comes to the, you know, the civil society and more specifically speaking, the civil society that actually take uh, to the street and, you know, and, and protest. Um, some scholars have talked about a revolutionarization of the civil society and of protesting practices in the country. Uh, we have seen how uh, subsequent uh, protest um, waves in 2015, 2018, 18, and then the latest 2019 have been more and more radical, more and more radical and also mixing different types of demands coming from different types of political, of, of social groups and social classes that were present in the, um, in the, in the protest. So the Green Movement back in 2009 was a extreme was a very middle class movement. So was was uh, um, you know the, the there was a very strong social class based identity amongst the protesters. What we see today are protest movements that are much more cross class, that are much more radical in the demands and the slogans they are um, you know they are they are using, and therefore have a much stronger, if you want, revolutionary potential, right? So this is also the reason why the government had to repress those movements, um, you know, so badly. In particular, 2009, uh, sorry, 2019, 2020 um, protests that were um, motivated by an increase in the oil of, in the price of oil, um, were the, the worst were the worst repressed protests since, you know, since 1979. So I think there is a connection there. And, and what is really, you know, what all this uh, kind of uh, radicalization, both on the part of the protesters and the part of the state when it comes to controlling the public space and protesting is telling us is that the state in a, is in a very bad position. Um, I don't think the regime is yet to, you know, I'm not predicting regime change. I'm not, I don't think that, you know, the Islamic Republic is, is, isn't legitimate to the eyes of the population anymore. I think things are much more complex. 
but I think that there is a, you know, there is a very clear trajectory and there's a very clear dynamic at play. And, um, you know, and, and the next presidency will need to, um, to be able to, to be very flexible and to be able to come to terms with, uh, you know, with this radicalization. Because, you know, political violence against dissenters, against protesters, against, you know, whatever um, protests and, you know, civil society, opposition and civil society, you know, can do in the short term, but they, you know, they're, they're not necessarily sustainable in the, in the longer and um, um, medium and longer term. That, that's very interesting, Paula. I mean, my, my sense is um, that even though you spoke earlier about entrepreneurs following the Revolutionary Guards into you know, the ports in Syria, most famously, um, there are certainly economic opportunities in, in the region for Iran uh, to pursue. But, but my sense is, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the scale of that would never be enough to really impact on the economy at home. It might keep the elites uh, in a bit more uh, sanction-busting, uh, mood, um, but really, if the relationship with Europe and the USA isn't fixed, the, the chances of the domestic economy improving the lot of the life uh, of the average Iranian to me seems unlikely, uh, and that a regional policy pursued by the Revolutionary Guards is not going to improve the domestic economy. Uh, am, am I right or wrong? I, I agree very much with this. Um, so, since the Islamic Republic has for you know, almost always since the very inception of, you know, of its history being under different types of, uh, you know, sanctions and uh, um, different types of sanction with, with a different, um, you know, with, with, with different implications for, for, for the economy. So um, it's, it's very, you, you know, so Iran, the Islamic Republic has put in place some strategy, some coping strategies for, you know, for, you know, for coping with the situation. So you would have today, and you know, and this process has accelerated actually in, you know, in the last say 15 years because sanction regimes have become, you know, harder and harder. Uh, so the Iranian economy has a degree of, for instance, autarky, you know, if you want, and to a certain degree it is, it is working. Um, there are also another coping strategy was to um, try to replace um, European investors and you know European the trade and business with European partners with uh, uh, Chinese partners, Russian partners. So partners that would have you, you know would be able to um, I mean to conduct business and trade with uh, with Iran. Um, I agree, however, with you that uh, this was not enough, or at least I mean this. Didn't, didn't do the trick, if you want, of, uh, you know, of actually replacing um, trade and business with Europe for a number of reasons. Um, the first reason is that, um, is that Iranians do pre would prefer to have European partners. There is, um, um, I, I actually I was in Iran in 2014, so just one year before the, you know, the, the nuclear agreement was reached. And... Um, I was there on kind of, uh, you know, not for research purposes, it was a slightly different type of, uh, you know, of, of traveling. So I was there with, uh, with a group of colleagues and we were trying to um, convince 
the uh, Minister of Higher Education to um, collaborate on, on a project. And the project was about water waste management and waste management. And so we, so we, we were, uh, we toured different places in, uh, you know, in, in Iran and in the area around, uh, sorry, in Tehran and in the area around Tehran, different technological parks and industrial parks. And it was very, it was a very, an extremely interesting, um, you know, an extremely interesting visit because um, first of all, it was very different from you know the kind of standard visits I would I would do in in the country so much more research focused with different type of uh, uh, you know research participants and so forth and so on uh, but what was really interesting for me in 2014 was to see who were the people uh, so who, who what nationality were the people uh, that you could find in those technological industrial parks what kind of businesses? Uh, were in place and um, so of course it was you know there was a majority of Chinese um, you know investors in those technological and industrial parks but was what was even more interesting for me was to listen to the people who were bringing us you know on on, on tour accompanying us um, that they would have they would have been so much happier to um, you know to have European partners um, and the you know the reason they were they were uh, articulating for this is that was that um, you know they were not happy with the quality of um, you know of Chinese products in particular uh, or Chinese technology. So I don't know whether it was the truth or they just wanted to you know just wanted to be nice to us. Uh, we all were European uh, people in the group, uh, but to me it was was really interesting because. You know, if on the one side, um, you know, this was a definitely a coping strategy that the regime was putting in place in order to replace European partners. On the other side, you know, it looked like it wasn't working, um, you know, as, as, uh, as expected. Uh, not only there's this kind of, um, you know, preference towards European partners and European technology and, and, and produces, um, but if we look at, um, if you look at economic data and uh, you know statistics, we can see that the trick of replacing Chinese, you know, Chinese technology with European technology and partners actually didn't work as you know as as the regime hoped it would work. Um, the other the other important element is that um, before the implementation of um, you know of of um, subsequent rounds of um, sanctions that would involve European partners, um, you know, too, and say from 2000 to mid 2000s, the most important commercial partners for, Ira for Iran were all European countries, Italy and Germany in the first place. So replacing, um, you know, replacing those hyper important economic actor is, is, extremely, is extremely difficult. So I, I do agree that there is, you know, there, there, there are difficulties when it comes to the kind of macroeconomy and there's definitely no kind of trickle down, uh, you know, effect. Um, there's no um, sanctions, unfortunately, are targeting, um, you know, not the normal people are really targeting the consumption uh, of, um, you know, the ordinary citizens. Um, we know about medicine, 
um, and drugs um, sector. Um, and we and we know about the you know the, there's a huge literature about the um, you know the effect of on sanction of sanctions on prices and in particular the mad increase of uh, inflation and um, you know and and uh, and prices of everyday everyday goods. So I do agree with you that there's I mean there's a, there are structural uh, impediments for. Um, you know, for, for the Iranian economy economy to actually uh, be able to, um, you know, to deliver to, to its own people. Um, and I would say that, of course, there's, you know, there's a problem when it comes to mismanagement of resources, when it comes to corruption, but, you know, at, at a much more, at a much bigger level and a much more general level, uh, the biggest problem are sanctions, um, which are actually, you know, really keeping the, the Iranian economy in a state of, uh, uh, you know, stagnation, basically. Paolo, thank you very much for that. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Paolo Rivetti, Associate Professor in Politics in Dublin City University, talking to us uh, about the situation in Iran, in particular in the lead up to this June's presidential elections. Uh, certainly given us plenty of food for thought there, uh, certainly a focus on the Biden administration and looking out for signs of their change, but also the European Union emerging, hopefully, from the pandemic later this year, perhaps more optimistically seeking to play a role in the region. And we're, we're crucially also talking about the lives uh, of ordinary Iranians and the prospects for democratic transition or just an improvement in the quality of life in the country. Paolo, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to you.